You're listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. Well, um, Adrian, uh, just uh, an opportunity to start with to say thank you ever so much for launching this series of podcasts, The Good Conversation. And in that series, I'm going to be interviewing a number of different people and asking the really tough questions about faith. Uh, I have a very strongly held view that anyone who's in a position of a, a religious leadership should be open to question and indeed some of the toughest questions. So that's what this series of podcasts is going to be about. A good conversation based in mutual respect, uh, but still a preparedness to ask tough questions and be open to tough questions. And as I was preparing for this, I thought, well, that's not fair, is it? Uh, It's important before you start that process uh, that you actually make sure that you have been asked the tough questions. So this is why we're meeting today. But it's also an opportunity for people to uh, get to know me before this series of podcasts. I'm enormously uh, grateful uh, to you taking a break from your normal duties, reporting on the political situation here in Wales uh, to ask me these tough questions. So do go ahead and be as tough as you like. Well, I'm glad that you have invited me to ask questions rather than give answers, because I, I don't like being on the receiving end of the uh, the questions. I'm much happier asking, posing questions and, and challenging. But uh, thank you for inviting me. And 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 the the obvious point that I thought to start was to ask you more about why you wanted to do a podcast. What's a, you know uh, it's it, it is the way that people communicate uh, in a lot of areas. But what was it about the podcast format that appeal to you? Well, lockdown has been tough for all of us and um, it's an enormous difficulty for a priest, minister of religion as I am, because one of the great things about that priesthood is going out and about in these wonderful communities of Pontevillais and uh, Pentlegar. And if there was one thing that I've missed and grieved over, Uh, during the lockdown, it's that lack of uh, pastoral contact, that day-to-day pastoral contact with uh, people. And I think it's also a time when we do need to be asking those tough questions of each other and giving honest uh, answers uh, to them. So the combination of wanting to stretch my horizons beyond the front room as I am here of the vicarage in Pontevillais, but uh, also to really think about the challenges that our contemporary situation uh, has given us. Life is always tough. Any priest knows that. Um, But this last year, it's been remarkably tough. The other other side to it, of course, is that uh, sometimes people think of us clergy as somehow um, isolated from the challenges of life, and it isn't like that. I love love Dad's army, and I love the vicar in uh, Dad's army, uh, but I want much more sense of connection with what's going on around me than that wonderful character did. 
A lot of people will recognize that caricature of the uh, parish priest, um, but even those who don't think about you in that way might think of you as a distant figure, somebody who has the answers, somebody who's in, in, in kind of authority. And they might be interested to know how you found lockdown. Have you found it difficult? Has it affected your own mental well-being? I've always said in all kinds of contexts that it's not not having problems. It's a question of the quality of our response to those problems. And I will be absolutely honest with you that I've uh, found uh, lockdown exceptionally difficult. Uh, there's that sense of being isolated both from the community uh, and, um, and from those in my uh, pastoral care. Um, there's that sense of one day merging into uh, another. And it, it's, um, it's really, really uh, dragged me down. And so the question, again, that I've had to ask myself is, you know, I've been, I've been a priest for 30 years and I'm, I've been on and on about hope <laughs> year after year and Easter after Easter. And the question I've been trying to ask myself is, what does hope look like in these circumstances? And also with a very strong awareness that we need to think about how to provide pastoral care in these circumstances. And I've been doing that in all kinds of ways, but also that there is going to be a huge well of mental health issues. There it already is, but certainly as and when we get to the, and I hesitate to say these words, the post-COVID situation. It's nice to say them, but it may well be a long way off. But when we get to that, uh, I think both church and society are going to have to uh, tackle a huge backlog of uh, pastoral problems. To call to mind that our core business is pastoral care. Uh, some of the things that we get very bothered about are uh, really secondary uh, to that. Um, but then to think, how do we do that? And how do we do that in partnership uh, with the communities in Wales that have suffered so much? So going back to the podcast, um, you were telling me that you want to use it to ask difficult questions of, of, of people and to challenge them and challenge yourself uh, and, and to and to reach an understanding, I suppose, of, of different positions. So I'm going to going to try that. I'm also going to try to ask you questions about yourself. I thought, can you describe yourself in three words? They, they don't need to make a sentence. They can be three separate words. But if someone put you on the spot, as I'm doing now, and said, John, three words that sum you up, what would they be? I'd like to think faithful. I'd like to think faithful uh, because sharing faith is at the heart of uh, everything uh, that I do. And one has to have something to share. I think anyone who knows me would know that I have a tremendous uh, sense of humour. So joyful, jolly. Let's go with jolly. That, that's really important to me. When you can laugh, you should. As a priest, I know when it gets difficult and the laughs aren't there. So I've, I've always believed in building up a stock. And I think the third one is thoughtful. 
I've um, had opportunities of studying uh, many different contexts over the years. I'm committed to lifelong learning. I love learning. I, I read all the time. But I, when I say thoughtful, I don't mean that as an academic exercise. It's actually the reflection that's open to each and every one. It's not Dreaming Spires stuff. It's the reflection that's open to each and every one on their own situation and on the world in which we find ourselves. So uh, thoughtful, joyful, faithful. Is that okay? Well, actually, you, you came down on jolly, so I've written down faithful, <laughs> jolly, thoughtful. I'm jolly thoughtful. That would certainly be true. <laughs> That's uh, absolutely ideal. If you translated that into Latin, you could make a, a, a motto, a heraldic motto. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. Uh, and and which, uh, which are the top priorities for you? I've written down faith, family, politics, community. There may be others. Can you arrange them in order of importance? Uh, with difficulty is the answer. <laughs> I did ask you to ask the tough questions and actually making those. But I've lived a very full life, as uh, as I'm sure you're aware. And actually looking back at it now, I've just turned 60. And looking back at it now and doing that reflection, actually, as to what were the priorities, what are the priorities, is, uh, is actually fascinating. Um, I'm certainly somebody for whom family is desperately important. I'll share one, um, one anecdote with you that I met my wife, Gillian, at the governing body of the church in Wales, and we got married 10 months later. That, there's a mixture of professional and uh, personal things all at once. And uh, we've been uh, married since 1992. And I've said to more than one bishop of the church in Wales that that was the fastest decision ever taken at the governing body of the church in Wales. I've got uh, two sons, uh, Peter, who's a journalist in uh, Cardiff, uh, a colleague of yours uh, down there in the Bay and in other places, and he's a great communicator. Our other son, Adam, is uh, very, uh, very different. Uh, he's on the autistic spectrum. Each person on the autistic spectrum is an individual, is different, but in Adam's case, this means that he's got very little uh, spoken language. So the care of my family is of great importance to me, and like the parents of so many disabled children, I've had to fight the good fight uh, over the years uh, for that family. So that's important. My calling to the church is of huge importance. I first said to somebody when I was about 12 years old, somebody in my class who was asking me what I wanted to do uh, when I was an adult. <laughs> now I am an adult. Uh, I still would answer the same way. I want to be a priest. I never dreamt that that would mean a calling to the Church in Wales. I was in Manchester uh, at the uh, time. But then going back to all the politics, when you're fighting for your family, as I've had to do, and uh, it's been a hard struggle on occasions, you can't avoid the political issues. I always say that the three wise men, uh, when they brought their gifts, their resources were from health, education and social services. Um, and that's partly making the point that 
you can't avoid the politics. Uh, Jesus himself was plunged into the politics uh, from the beginning because uh, uh, because uh, Herod was uh, looking for him, uh, uh, seeking to kill him uh, from the very beginning. Uh, so you can't avoid the politics. I've got a book on my shelves here. As I say, I'm a great reader. And uh, I'd like to think thoughtful person, jolly thoughtful. Uh, Jesus and the politics of his day. You can't get away from the politics. So actually, in answer to your question, Adrian, I think I'd say that these things uh, all blend together, but there's an importance of making a separation uh, between each one of them as well. So for example, like any professional person, I not want to put too close together my professional agenda and my personal agenda. But when you're a priest, nor can you avoid that because you're bringing the personal into everything. So the blend there is really, really significant. It's saying uh, these things do blend, but also keeping those lines of separation uh, as well. I'm going to ask you more about the politics in a moment, and you've spoken about your family. So I, I suppose the, the third part of that mix, the faith aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a bit more about that. How, uh, how strong is your faith? Um, what knocks it? Let's put it that way. That's a good way to find out how strong is it. What <laughs> knocks your faith? Life. <laughs> Life. Um, I think the church is very bad on occasions at recognising how really difficult life is for so many people. We do pastoral work, we do know these things, uh, but we do need to recognise and express how difficult life is for people and how many uh, challenges uh, life uh, throws up for faith. I remember many years ago a headline in the Western Mail, I think it was. Priest questioned his faith after son's autism diagnosis shock. Now, I'd have some, with all the greatest of respect to the Western Mail, I'd have some issues uh, with that because, of course, there are tremendous dangers in that kind of headline for people with uh, disabilities. And the, the idea that this is, this is the most awful thing that could possibly happen to a priest. But I wouldn't for a moment deny uh, how challenging it was. I wrote a book about it, Disabled Church, Disabled Society, the implications of autism for philosophy, theology and politics. It's a great mouthful of a title. Well done <laughs> for remembering it. And I'd like to think a jolly, a jolly thoughtful book. But I actually explored the idea in that book that there are certain situations which are so, so difficult and they come to us all at different times in our lives and some people uh, go through uh, more difficult things than others, but everybody has been in that place. That there is a place of ultimate concern uh, where uh, faith and lack of faith uh, meet up. 
that there is actually something that uh, goes beyond the old boundary between the uh, sacred and the secular. That's not to say that I don't, uh, that faith is, as I've already made clear, I'm sure is of huge importance to me. My Christian faith is of huge importance to me. My belonging to the church in Wales is of huge importance to me. Uh, all of those things. Uh, but maybe it's time that we need to explore uh, what, in our divided world, what jumps across that, uh, that boundary, that transcends the boundary between the uh, sacred uh, and uh, the secular. Just one more thing on that, something that I learned many, many years ago in uh, when I was in university. And uh, there was a splendid uh, chaplain there, Anthony Phillips, um, uh, from whom I learned a, a tremendous amount. And one of the themes of his sermons, you see, I do listen to sermons as well as give them <laughs> and, and remember them over decades. Um, one of the themes of his ser sermons was the absence of God and the idea that when we feel that God is absent, then he is most truly present. And I do believe that that fits in with what some would call um, an orthodox version of Christianity, what I think I would call an orthodox version of uh, Christianity, uh, because uh, for uh, the, mo the moment that that happens is the moment of the uh, cross. There's an absence of God when, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So <laughs> if, if you're asking, has my faith ever been knocked? Yes. And the, I'd answer the fact that it's been knocked and I have the memories, the often bitter memories of that is absolutely central to my faith and the way in which we interpret faith in the modern world. Are you a different kind of Christian now, uh, now that you're older, to the kind of Christian you were when you were younger? Some people uh, are um, radicals when they're young and then more conservative when they're older or conservative when they're young and more radical when they're older. Some Christians are fire and brimstone when they're young and more liberal when they're older or vice versa. What about you? Have you changed over the years? Um, I've been going to church since the 70s. I started as an Anglican. Incredibly, though my son won't believe this, in the uh, in the church choir. And uh, if you ask Peter when you're down in the bay what he thinks of my singing, you'll get a, you'll get a very a very prompt response to that one. <laughs> uh, how I started the church choir, I don't know, but I would say that I've become more radical over the years. I like the word radical, something that goes to the root of it. Uh, I was very much formed in my earlier years and continue to be nurtured by the uh, Catholic tradition uh, within uh, Anglicanism. Uh, that, that's where I am. But I now identify myself either as a radical Catholic or a liberal Catholic. And uh, in general, I've got more radical and I've got more lefty. As, and that's going back to the politics, more lefty as the years uh, have uh, have gone past. Uh, that's that's just uh, that's just the way uh, that uh, things have been. But one comment about that word liberal, uh, as you know, in American politics and indeed in American religion and um, back here as well, it can be used uh, in the most damning terms. 
and I'd be wondering, I, I wonder what the response to this podcast series will be. Will people be saying, oh, yes, that John Gillibrand, he's a liberal. What in the world has happened, and it has happened, where liberal, which is a wonderful thing, has become that way of dismissing others and of not actually listening. It's become a, a party label and not actually listening uh, to what has been said. So, yes, I have become more radical. I'm very proudly a liberal Catholic, nurtured within the uh, Catholic uh, tradition, uh, but interpreting that in increasingly radical ways as I've gone on. At the grand old age of 60 plus now, um, heaven knows where I'm going next. <laughs> well, we can't blame it all on youth then, can we? Uh, no, so... absolutely. A youthful spirit, maybe. <laughs> Let's dive into the politics then, because you you, you put a forceful argument for uh, religion and politics. You know, there is another forceful argument for keeping them separate. And I suppose people go back to that text about rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Oh, there are all kinds of justifications for it, that you should separate out uh, politics and religion, not the least because you, as uh, a pastor, have to look after people who will disagree with your politics um, and who you disagree with. How do you square that circle? It's difficult. It's complex. I'm a historian by training. I love history. Don't tell anybody in the church in Wales, but it's the history books I read here in the vicarage. I do read theology as well. I love history. And I started years ago with 17th century English history, as it was called. I had to relearn my history when I came to Wales. But the thing that I was looking at and that I was introduced to uh, was the uh, Cromwellian period. And it has always sounded an alarm for me as to when armed force and the power of the state and the fierce religious passions meet up. It's a very, very dangerous combination. Now, I'd argue that that's why clergy like me need to do politics, because it actually looks at it in a different way. If there aren't people like me around, it'll be done exactly as I've been described. And as I say, that dangerous combination of brute force and strong religious passions, which in the end leads to people uh, getting hurt physically. But but what I mean that obviously that is at its most extreme and its most serious. But what about you know one of your parishioners who's a conservative, small yeah. C, big C, uh, they don't don't believe in your view of nationhood. They don't believe in in uh, what you have to say about say the welfare state. But they've got some deep spiritual problems. How how can they come to you knowing that you disapprove of all all that side of them? The church has to be a place for all. It's the, it's the same principle, priests aren't social workers, but it's the same principle for a social worker. You have to look after everyone and not allow your political agendas uh, to uh, determine that. And it's also to do with the title of these uh, podcasts, Good Conversations. Um, I lost a very good friend uh, some years ago now, uh, 
Archdeacon Winford Rees, who was the Archdeacon of Brecon. And I've known him ever since I first joined uh, the church in Wales. And after he retired, he uh, bought a bungalow outside his parish and it was election time. And I went to visit him one day and saw this huge poster for Nick Bourne in his uh, front lawn. <laughs> he was retired by then. I'd never put up an election poster in the vicarage, as you might imagine, but uh, Winford was retired by then. And he opened the door and I just looked at him. I said, uh, I thought your house was for sale. <laughs> I thought your house was for sale. And that, I know it's a, a small story and a little anecdote, but it's actually modelling good relations between people of different political persuasions. However, one thing I would say in addition to that, and bear in mind the times in which we live, uh, and thinking of the wonderful example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the church can never have any truck with the extreme right wing. Bonhoeffer sacrificed his life to that principle and the extreme right wing is so contrary to, to a simple Christian belief of love your neighbour as you love yourself. Love your neighbour as you love yourself keeps those conversations going within the church. The kind of conversation I had with Winford that day when I was teasing him about the being the biggest toy in Thundering Dodd Wells. Uh, but it also means that there's certain things which are, can never be acceptable. In fairness, will you also say the same thing about the extreme left? Or is that you displaying your own personal bias that you can only see danger on the right and you can't see it at the extreme of your own side? Um, I'm a person on the left. It would be hard to describe my politics as uh, central. I'm somebody who looks for radical change. And uh, going back to the religious sphere, I'd call it um, uh, kingdom of God politics. Uh, so I am, uh, I am on the left. But what is important is that sense of conversation and inclusive politics. And I think, I think at its best, the uh, Welsh Senate has been, uh, and over the years, brilliant at this. That sense of inclusive politics, so important to the good functioning of democracy and the health of our society. Again, as a historian, going back to some of the history and looking at the record of the extreme left, I talked about the way in which there was a, can be a fatal literally fatal combination uh, between hard religion and hard politics. But uh, to think, for example, of the Stalin's regime in uh, Russia, uh, what we need to think about is how we can radically transform society, participate in that radical uh, transformation uh, without creating a political monster. Uh, and inclusive politics are really important for that. And yes, I do think uh, the left has a problem when we long for change and then try to force people into making the change that we long for. It's not, um, my PhD studies were Michel Foucault, whose big theme is power. 
and power relationships, not just in sovereignty, but in other ways. Uh, power is so often the problem. Let me push this thought then, but bring it. Um, I, I think I understand you that extremes on both sides are, are dangerous and that, that should be avoided. That's very clear. But bring it back closer then. So back to uh, maybe maybe not the, uh, the the former, the retired colleague you're talking about, but somebody else. Can you, as a left wing a person with left-wing politics who is a, a priest and a devout Christian, can you say, hand on heart, that uh, a person who believe, who doesn't quite believe in the welfare state as you do, or believes in the power of uh, private enterprise more than you do, uh, and self-resilience more than you do, um, doesn't think the NHS is the right way of solving uh, health issues, could they be as as devout a Christian, as good a Christian, nobody's nobody's a good Christian, I understand that, but as, as true a Christian as, as, as you and people like you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, th I think that is uh, such an important uh, principle. I wouldn't want to be put into a position, uh, I know this is difficult in all kinds of uh, professions, but I wouldn't want to be in, put in a position where I could never say anything uh, from the heart about the National Health Service. Um, that's actually a kind of censorship or self-censorship that um, um, even for the sake of the church in Wales, I wouldn't be able to, uh, able to uh, live with. What I'd say is something like this. Here you've got this priest who is modelling reflection about the relationship between faith and politics. And for example, as I'm modelling that reflection, I might go to the Magnificat, Mary's uh, uh, song, uh, the rich he has sent empty away, the powerful he's taken down from their thrones and, and so on and so forth. Now, I have no difficulty with somebody strongly disagreeing with my interpretation of scripture or specifically of the Magnificat, because if they do so, they too will be reflecting on the relationship between uh, faith and politics. And it is so crucially important for reasons that I've said that we get that relationship right, uh, that anything that promotes nuanced, critical reflection upon that relationship, I am happy with more than happy with. I'd rather the the conservative, to whom I'm extending pastoral care, um, and uh, I'm sure you know me well enough, Adrian, to know that I, well, I did vote Tory in 1979, but I, I've not done so ever since. But the person, the Tory voter, to whom I'm extending pastoral care, all I'd say is, let me hear let me hear your song. Let me hear how you interpret that key relationship between uh, uh, politics and faith. And let's have a good conversation about it. And one more question about politics. Uh, well, actually, it's about party politics. Um, because par political parties, and I've, I've been reporting on them for a long time, <laughs> I've got a love-hate relationship with them. Should we put that? Um, <laughs> so say we. So say we all. <laughs> um, I mean, one thing I, I, I and this is one way of describing them. There are other ways. Is that they are, um, they, they exclude. Um, that they include certain 
be you know if you sign up to, to to various tenets and various beliefs and various policies then you you can be part of that but they they exclude others and that's something that you know is a is a flaw of all kinds of human uh, endeavor but political parties in particular that they are they exclude um yet you you do align yourself to uh, party politics how do you square i keep asking about squaring circles but how do you square that one I've spent decades trying to square circles with more or less success. Um, it's a, it's a, again, you're asking, I'm so glad you're doing this because I did ask you to do it. You're asking the really difficult questions. Um, I'm somebody who believes in a radically inclusive church and that goes to inclusiveness uh, politically on, on all kinds of issues. Uh, one of the things I say in, um, my online worship, or have been known to say my online worship, is you are all unconditionally welcome. Heaven only knows who's watching me, but I say to them, and I don't know who's there, but I say to each and to all, you are unconditionally welcome. And that's something to do with my own experience of the unconditional uh, love of God. I, I can't figure my Christianity any other way. Uh, but as you know, and as you've just said, uh, political parties uh, can be um, can be desperately uh, exclusionary, and um, that's not been helped by the advent of uh, social media. As you know, I'm an active social media user, <laughs> living a charmed life. I seem to have found the quieter quieter corner of Twitter. People people have always been very nice to me so far. I, I, I wish you could show me that quieter corner. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to turn it down. I'm trying to <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I see what goes on on uh, Twitter. There's an awful lot of. Um, of exclusionary behavior, of mirroring behavior, of defining yourself over against the other. So when I say that I am the member of a political party, and you know which one it is, <laughs> and I'm going to say it out loud, I'm a, I'm a member of Plaid Cymru, and that's to do with my journey with Welshness all the way from Manchester as well. Um, I do believe, and it should actually be true for uh, other political parties as well, um, I'm not particularly keen to hear from any politician what they're against and who they're against and who they hate, basically, because uh, I'm in the love your neighbour business. What I'd be wanting to hear from any party political platform is what do you positively stand for? We have actually a problem in religion here because we're all uh, sons and daughters and children of the Reformation. And as you know, the big word of the Reformation is Protestant, what we're against. And we then end up with the Counter-Reformation so we can go for another, another jump in, the same, uh, in, uh, in a similar kind of direction. And actually applies to religious communities, applies to political parties. What are you for? What are you in favour of? What are your positive values? Filter out the negativity and let's see what the gold is. You mentioned Plaid Cymru. Um, it's a nationalist party. There is, there is a different definition of nationalism that they use to other kinds of nationalist parties. But 
doesn't nationalism always pose a risk because it's we're talking about excluding it's drawing a boundary some might say it's artificial but it's drawing a physical boundary and it's saying we are separate to the people over there now that is a real sharp end question if i may say so well you <laughs> so did ask for them <laughs> it's the kind of question i'd expect from from, from you sir that's that's uh, it's a it's a really really um it's a really important question i'm in an interesting position because I'm from Manchester. I've learned Welsh over the years and I'm a fluent Welsh speaker now and do quite a bit of my uh, uh, regular work uh, and indeed family life through the medium of uh, Welsh. So uh, these issues do matter for me. Do you consider yourself Welsh or still English? I would say that I am hugely proud of my roots in Manchester that wonderful radical city of the Peterloo massacre and everything I was brought up with. Uh, I'm hugely proud of Manchester and what Manchester stands for. I'm hugely proud of my English roots. Uh, I'm 100% English, but I'm now able to say after, well, I won Welsh Road of the Year back in the day in 1990. And after all these years, I think I can now say, I'd have to ask friends and colleagues this, but, so, but I hope I'm allowed to say I'm 100% Welsh. It's not a zero-sum uh, game. Now, I would support independence for Wales because I think it's our only practical alternative in the situation in which we find ourselves. And there's a whole other conversation that we could have about that. But we do need to think about what the nature of independence is. And I think one of the problems is that so much of our life in Wales is shaped by 19th century models. It's there in the churches and chapels. It's there in the town halls. It's there in the built environment around us uh, day by day. Uh, it is so Queen Victoria. And one of the things that we've ended up with is the 19th century uh, model of the nation state and the way in which the nation state developed in the 19th century, where the great ideal was um, millions and millions of people with a line drawn around them, all with one constitution and one language. And actually, I think our world is more diverse than that, and that there are now opportunities because of the internet, this thing that we're using at the moment, to build diverse communities. It's similar to the point I was making a, a little while ago about the boundary between the sacred and the secular. Uh, we actually learn, need to learn to live on boundaries and to realize that there are things which transcend boundaries. And one of my huge regrets, I'm a Euro fanatic, I suppose, and um, deeply, profoundly saddened by the way things have developed over the last four years, and mindful of all the weaknesses of uh, the European Union, uh, like any, any political entities got weaknesses and um, uh, but there was actually there a kind of moving towards that uh, 
more diverse approach to uh, our world. Um, and that's why I always loved the uh, slogan that some used uh, some years ago, and I hope to this day, Wales in Europe. I'm never going to want to be hostile to England. I'm never, I, I, it'll always be significant crossing, uh, crossing uh, those bridges uh, on the M4. But um, when I cross that bridge from the place I call home, I'm also going home. And that actually, that's a personal experience, but it tells us something about the nature of boundaries. I've, I've loved having this conversation with you because uh, I've known you for a long time and we've chatted about all manner of things, but this has been a, a way of getting to know you that is, uh, has been really enjoyable. So I'm going to um, throw you some quick fire question oh, not the quick fire questions i've seen this on the television <laughs> here we go are you ready for this thank you football or rugby rugby every time uh mainly i was brought up in manchester but um, to be honest i've not really uh, followed sports over the years um but i did put myself down as a city supporter uh, back in the day because of moving to Wales, I always remember that great moment when for the first time I literally cried when Wales won the Grand Slam. Twitter or Facebook? Fa Facebook for my mates. Twitter actually as a learning, a learning experience at its best when we're listening. I've learned an enormous amount just from watching those tweets. Chocolate or sweets? At the moment, neither because I'm on a diet and I've lost one and a bit stones i've got a long way to go congratulations um, when, when you're not on a diet when you're not on a diet which one uh or oh, uh, chocolate one <laughs> one of one of the one of the reasons that i believe it, that there is a good there is a good god is the existence of chocolate poetry or novels for years i didn't read novels i love love poetry as well years i didn't read novels and then i started again and just found it so strengthened my pastoral work. Actually, again, listening to other people's stories and trying to think, what do I make of all of this? So novels. TV or radio? I love radio and radio has been a real companion in the lockdown. It has to be TV because I love TV, science fiction, Star Trek, Babylon 5, um, all of those, these later series of um, Star Trek, The Mandalorian, has to be TV because otherwise I couldn't have those experiences. So Star Trek or Doctor Who? Star Trek, I think. <laughs> I'm mindful that I don't want to lose the audience for this podcast. <laughs> I love the fact that Doctor Who is made it made in Wales and is one of the glories of our national culture. But I've probably watched every episode of Star Trek and Doctor Who that's ever been made. Netflix or S4C? S4C, because very kindly, when they moved to their headquarters in Flanishan, when I was Welsh Learner of the Year, they asked me as Welsh Learner of the Year to go and unveil the plaque on the opening of their new uh, studio. They, S4C has moved on since then, but I am eternally grateful to S4C in a way that I couldn't possibly be to Netflix until they invite me to open their HQ. One more TV question then, Michael Sheen or Luke Evans? 
uh, Michael Sheen because he's uh, because he's local to us and there is talk that he'll be the next Doctor Who. History or theology? That is a difficult question. I'm going to uh, say I cannot separate uh, separate the two. It, it, it's part of the same um, faith-seeking understanding. One thing that I will say is don't let anybody, when I open my Bible, expect me to leave the fact that I'm a historian at the door, because in the end, I have to come to God's word in Holy Scripture as who I am, and that is who I am. And we need to be much more alive to the ways in which historians interpret sacred texts. If we wrap sacred texts in cotton wool, we're doing them no favours. So that's the longer answer to your question. Hymns or arias? <laughs> I remember, <laughs> you're making me remember things now from many years ago. Uh, first ever contact with Wales was when somebody, when I was a teenager in Manchester, bought a copy into the house of Lida Triorki and I listened to uh, Max Boyce. I didn't even realise in those days that he was a Welsh speaker until some years later, and I actually got uh, 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 an LP of him uh, singing in Welsh. So we were singing hymns and arias. Land of my fathers, Ahidanos. Uh, that's a lovely story, but I'm going to have to push you. I asked you to choose between hymns or arias. Hymns at their best, when whoever's writing the hymn has really thought about the theology. Hymns, when they're sentimental, uh, I, I have great difficulty with them. And there are certain things, even in well-known hymns, that I uh, just quietly cannot sing and I have to hum. Classical or pop music? I was majorly into classical music when I was uh, young. Um, don't know why, but uh, that was the way it uh, happened. And I missed out on some of the glories of the uh, 70s. Um, I, my tastes have changed over the years. I love pop music. It's possibly from my days as a teacher when it was really essential knowledge apart from anything else. Um, so uh, for eight, eight, 80s pop music, I absolutely, uh, absolutely adore. Nearly finished. Beer or wine? Uh, wine. Wine. Very, White very or red? Uh, red. So yeah, we are going quick far now. Yes, red wine. And finally, optimistic or pessimistic? You're making me here uh, recall, um, recall uh, the words of uh, Gramsci. A pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the uh, will. I am fundamentally an optimist. Somebody, actually a, a politician as it happens, taught me to love a particular verse from the Psalms. Verily, I believe to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It's something uh, that is a reality and has to be a reality in the here and now. I think we'll leave the quickfire there and probably uh, leave the conversation there because I think we've covered such a, a large ground and so many different areas. Um, I hope you didn't uh, 
find it too uncomfortable being on the receiving end of some sharp end style questions throughout this conversation? Uh, not, not at all. As you know, I'm a great fan of uh, Sharp End and of all the political broadcasting on ITV, uh, on, on all the political broadcasting on ITV Wales. I've watched you over the years asking these questions. I've always been struck by your unfailing uh, politeness and courtesy, but, but you, your combination of patience and actually asking those uh, those penetrating questions, I, I always wondered what it would be like to be on the receiving end of that. And no, as not. as of this morning, I know. So thank you ever so much, Adrian. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. This podcast was produced by Phil John, with music by Dan Greensmith.